0: What we discover is something really striking. They think that Rome, at least Rome in the 16th century, that is, is the one that's actually uh, strayed from the historic Catholic teaching of the church and has actually, on certain points, maybe not every point, but on certain points, has actually embraced more what they would have called modern. (laughs) And by that, they mean more modern ideas and innovations
1: themselves. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I get to be your host today. My name is Sam Parkinson. I am Associate Professor of Theology at the Gulf Theological Studies, coming to you from Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates and uh, uh for my first guest of my new podcast, I'm going to have Matthew Barrett on uh to discuss one of his forthcoming books, so Matthew Barrett, welcome to my podcast
0: <laughs> absolutely it's It's good to be on, and uh what a joy what a what how good to talk to you too Sam
2: yeah, it's good to hear from you. It's been a while. Many of our listeners may know that uh i've I've been on the podcast before as the interviewer for uh, previous books, and uh, that was when I was still living in KC and in the U.S., and so a lot has transpired since then, but eager to talk. And we're talking today about uh, one of your forthcoming books. Uh, No, we're not talking about the Doctrine of God book that's coming out with Baker, nor are we talking about the one-volume Systematic Theology that's coming out with Baker. Nor are we talking about the uh, Trinity book with IVP Academic, (laughs) nor the Dogmatics books that you are editing with Craig Carter with B&H Academic. We're talking about the Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, an intellectual and theological history that should be coming out right around this time this podcast releases with Zondervan Academic. Dr. Barrett, you can understand why some people might— think that uh, Matthew Barrett doesn't exist and he's just a persona of six or seven theologians that are writing books under his (laughs) pseudonym. So maybe you can dispel the rumors and tell us how it's possible for one man to write so many of these books.
0: Well, uh, the secret Sam, you you really blew it, didn't you? Because we we don't want people to know that you are the one that's actually writing these books. And (laughs) I'm just, you know, I'm putting my name on it. (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I love to write, uh, as you know, and have a passion for writing. As you do, Sam, you're a very talented and gifted Mm -hmm. writer yourself. And I always tell people there's no secret to it. It's a lot of hard work and consistency but also enjoying something that you love to do anyways and so mm-hmm. i always those who have listened to the credo podcast before know that i'm a fan of stephen king and uh, one mm. of the things that stephen king says is to be a writer it's something that you have to do anyways it would it would bleed yep. out of you regardless <laughs> so yep. uh, that's me more or less amen amen
2: yep i can identify with that for sure Um, Yeah. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about this book of yours. You have written this um, rather big book. I I was joking around with a group of my friends about how I feel like it's a a flex if you can write a book with a a title this long, this Puritan (laughs) length title and subtitle and still fit the entire thing on the spine of the book. So you've written this very big book on the Reformation. And so the, the first question I wanted to ask you a little bit about your introduction and the reformers' self-understanding, basically how they understood themselves in relation to their, their project, what they thought they were up to, and specifically in light of uh, Calvin's letter to Satellito. But I, I also have kind of a broader question about your book as a whole. So maybe this is a good way to get at your introduction, to tie in the introduction, as well as this other question. So here's the question. First question. You've set out to write a book about the Reformation. And yet you've taken the first 350 plus pages to write about the medieval church. And so my first question is, what gives? Why spend the first 350 plus pages of a book about the Reformation talking about the medieval church?
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you began with that question because sometimes, I mean, there's so many great histories of the Reformation out there, so I'm not by any means pretending that this book is, even though it's long, uh, is in in some sense, you know, a definitive history of the Reformation. I am clearly standing on the shoulders of many other great writers and historians. So that said, at the same time, I've noticed that, especially with students or even those in the church, uh, if they pick up any book on the Reformation, as great as it may be, it is difficult to understand what the Reformers are up to if you have no understanding of the Middle Ages. And I see this all the time. Students and pastors and and churchgoers will jump right into, say, Calvin and his understanding of justification or Luther and 1517 or Melanchthon, right, and, and his little work on theology or whoever it may be. And they begin to read some of our current discussions back into the 16th century, in large part because they don't understand, first and foremost, that the Reformers were very much medieval men. And if you don't understand what they're reacting to and what they're not reacting to, which is the more pertinent question, I think, then it's very difficult to understand their theology and their context, at least in its fullest sense. And so I think one of the unfortunate consequences of that tendency to just read the 16th century as if it's coming out of nowhere is this. We tend to look at the Reformation as just this total or even radical break with the past which may serve some of our current polemical agendas well, but it actually doesn't serve to be an accurate understanding of the reformers very well. And I'm afraid that they wouldn't have recognized they wouldn't recognize themselves in some of our <laughs> own narratives. Uh, when you look at the reformers and their context, you mentioned Calvin and Cardinal Salletto. Uh, this is important because the reformers are being accused uh, from the very start of being innovative, uh, of it being novel, and in the 16th century, that is a very dangerous thing. In fact, it could even be heretical, and they're yeah. not—they're not strangers to this accusation. So Rome is throwing out this grenade, in a sense, that the reformers have actually betrayed the Church universal, or as we could call it, as the creed calls it, the Church Catholic. Catholic with a small C. Right. And therefore, they're not to be trusted. They're breaking from the, the one holy uh, Catholic and apostolic church. And worst case scenario, they're leading churchgoers in a heretical direction. This has consequences then for their spiritual state or their spiritual destiny, whether they will end up in heaven or hell. As you can tell, this is a very powerful—this could preach— um, mm-hmm. The reformers react, though, to this by making—not not by saying, yeah, you're right, we are breaking from the church, Catholic, the church universal. That would actually be more in line with certain radical reformers that the magisterial reformers really had no patience for. So, So what mm-hmm. is happening? Well, when you look at the 16th century Protestant reformers, they are arguing, no, we actually have— continuity with the church Catholic, the church universal. And not only does that continuity spread across major doctrines of Christian orthodoxy from, say, the existence and attributes of God to the Trinity to Christology and so much more, but even on those controversial doctrines like soteriology and the church, they were actually claiming to have a certain continuity with uh, the past, especially the Augustinian tradition and its heirs in the Middle Ages, that they thought was not just convincing but compelling and actually proof that they were not these innovative heretics. And I think we could even go further and say that when we look at some of their debates, what we discover is, is something really striking They think that Rome, at least Rome in the 16th century, that is, is the one that's actually uh, strayed from the historic Catholic teaching of the church. And has actually, on certain points, maybe not every point, but on certain points, has actually embraced more what they would have called modern. (laughs) Uh, And by that, Hmm. they mean more modern Ideas and innovations themselves, mm. and this comes out uh, when they start to reference who it is in the Middle Ages. They're they're quite disturbed with. Now, it's not to say that they don't have you know certain critiques of a Peter Lombard or Thomas Aquinas. They do on on certain matters of soteriology and ecclesiology. But when you look at the very genesis of the Reformation, we can get into this later their issue is is really with late medieval innovations so think here 14th 15th centuries just on the eve of the reformation that have taken Form and had certain soteriological and ecclesiastical consequences that they the reformers think no this is actually out of step so the mm. the 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 uh, counter argument is ironic a bit infuriating uh, as you can imagine for Rome because this is exactly what happens you mentioned Calvin Calvin gets uh, basically fired from Geneva <laughs> this is a long story right. there but as he's in exile so to speak here comes Cardinal Sadaletto to. who who writes to the church in Geneva saying, come back, come back to Mother Church, come back to Rome. Calvin has led you astray and now's your chance to return to uh, this haven of safety. And basically what I've said, Calvin responds that way. He defends doctrines Mm. like sola scriptura and uh, sola fide, but in doing so, he doesn't do so as if, well, these doctrines are novel. He actually does so in a way to say, no— I, I am teaching the Genevans to actually be truly Catholic, maybe even more right. Catholic than you, Sadaletto, which of course yeah. doesn't sit well with with Sadaletto either.
2: Yeah, there's a lot there. First of all, let me just say thank you for very gently correcting my pronunciation of if That was a, a kind of you to, to do that. But um, yeah, there's a lot there that reminds me of not not just the letter that he wrote to Sadaletto, but also the introduction to his institutes that he wrote to King Francis the I. Yes. And I was, I just reread that um, recently. My wife is actually reading uh, through the English translation of Calvin's first, the first French edition of his institutes in 1541. And it has that uh, letter included in there. And he says, it's equally unfair of the papist to set the ancient fathers against us That is, those who wrote in the early years of the church as if they sided with them and their godliness. If the father's authority could be invoked to settle the dispute between us, victory would very largely go with us. And so what you're saying here, it's not really news for those that are interested at least even just to read some of the introductory letters written by uh, these reformers themselves you know, these introductory letters to their great theological works. And yet there's this narrative that persists. You call it the oppositional narrative um, in your book by both Roman Catholics and evangelicals today Hmm. uh, that the Protestants were starting something new. And you described it as more of a radical Reformation impulse than the impulse of the magisterial reformers. And so the question is, why is it so common that this even today, this continues to be a common narrative even among evangelicals who are supposed to be the the heirs of the reformers and not necessarily the radical reformers. But today, evangelicals seem to describe something very different. The, the, the narrative they describe is that Rome, you know, had become heretical, and so in order to get the purity of the gospel back, they had to break all together and just start something brand new, basically go all the way back to the scriptures without without inheriting anything else that had come between the scriptures and the late medieval time period when they're uh, sort of coming to their own. So why is this so common? How How did this happen that the evangelicals have inherited the narrative of the radical reformers rather than uh, the reformers that they, they claim to be in line with?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really difficult question to answer because uh, I do think some of the reasons are uh, so wrapped up <laughs> in just the evangelical intellectual culture. And, uh, mm. But I do think at the same time, there are some ob- more objective reasons why this has happened. Some of it has to do with history itself. I think there has been a common interpretation, maybe out of a good motive to defend sola scriptura, but nonetheless, a misunderstanding or a caricature of the reformers as if to be Protestant in the 16th century meant you were anti-tradition. And I don't know how to say this, except to just say that's bogus. Uh, (laughs) The the reformers would have been... Mortified to hear that about themselves. Uh, in fact, even their debates over sola scriptura, in some sense, I mean, Heiko Obermann makes this point really well when he essentially says they're not so much debates over scripture as they are debates over what kind of tradition we should we should mm-hmm. have in light of scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can get into some of that discussion later. In our next episode, I, I know you want to talk about, you know, what is the difference between curialism and conciliarism and, yeah. you know, what is sola scriptura exactly? What is it not? But I think it's helpful to mention at this point that the reformers didn't react to Rome as if, oh, tradition needs to be dispensed so that we can get back to the Bible. I think that they looked at Rome in their day at least and saw, oh, they have actually a miss construed elevation of tradition in some cases, even to the level of scripture, the answer then is to rightly understand tradition and subservience to scripture, but nonetheless to understand tradition and the way it was meant to be used and and utilized. And so in that sense, they're not dispensing with tradition at all. They're actually uh, appealing. I mean, that quote from Calvin is so revealing, right? Here is his preface letter I mean, out of everything Calvin could have said, but in light of some of the persecution that's taking place, especially amidst what we might call today these French evangelicals or French Mm -hmm. Calvinists, in light of that, Calvin feels the need to say, well, if we had to put on the scales our position and and your position, the church fathers would weigh the scale down in our favor. And so there you see a sense in which Calvin is appealing in this case to a patristic tradition, in defense of the Reformation. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is I think also uh, some of this is really ironic, (laughs) maybe even a bit embarrassing. Uh, Because in the 20th century, it was actually Protestant liberalism that that made a similar (laughs) argument to the one that that you articulated. I mean you look at Adolf von Harnack and and that's the type of argument that comes out of Protestant liberalism. And you can see why because Protestant liberalism in the 20th century is highly motivated to put forward a Protestantism – well, is is Harnack, but that's not shackled by the weight, yeah. uh, the chains of of tradition, and so they go back and they read, they reread someone like Luther as this revolutionary mm-hmm. figure, who actually is breaking with the church and and its heritage entirely, almost as right. if he's this like uh, proto modern Enlightenment man, right. who's, yeah. who's ahead of the game. So, so it's a bit ironic for that reason, too. But the other thing I'll mention here, uh, just for further thought, is I do think that sometimes when this narrative is perpetuated in, in all kinds of ways, I do think it's in large part due to a theological issue, and it's this. I think that when we look at the Reformation, we forget that... The reason the reformers have to focus so much on polemics is because there's specific doctrines in soteriology and ecclesiology that they're taking issue with. Right. The trouble enters when we then assume that, well, that means they must be taking issue with a whole lot more, if not everything. And that's the critical mistake. And I would say it's just a failure to actually do history in context, right? Yeah. Uh, And you see that today too. You know, if you ask someone, what does it mean to be Protestant? They oftentimes will immediately go to, say, the doctrine of justification. Now, that's extremely important and we need to do that. But it's often revealing what they don't say. And and there is... The the reformers uh, just—I mean, I'm not the first one to say this. I mean, Richard Muller has done some great work in this area where he has shown that for good reason, the reformers did not need to take issue with, say, the doctrine of the Trinity or Christology. In fact, heaven forbid, they thought, because if they did Mm -hmm. so, that actually would have proven Rome's accusation to be correct, that they are innovative, Mm -hmm. that they are heretical. And what's really revealing is when the radicals step in and they are the ones— do start to tinker <laughs> with yeah. Catholic orthodoxy, the reformers respond yep. and with great uh, <laughs> concern to say, no, no, no. Yes, we are taking issue with, okay, is, is righteousness imputed or infused or is the papacy, you know, where we, we look to for our polity and so on. But we're not taking issue with, say, you know, Chalcedonian Christology. Uh, To do so would would actually be quite heretical. So that is another issue is I think sometimes out of good motives to, you know, focus on some of these polemical issues, we forget there are a million other issues that the Reformers simply assumed the Roman Catholic Church had correct. And and therefore the Reformers too stood in that line of orthodoxy.
2: Yeah, I think there's something – almost perverse about the desire to say i want a uniquely protestant a uniquely reformed view on every single every single doctrine i can possibly think of because mm-hmm. you really don't i mean you want a uniquely protestant and reformed perspective on the doctrines that divide that rightly divide protestant reformed theology from rome or eastern orthodoxy or whatever but one of my favorite examples to point to is is william perkins book, A Reformed Catholic. And it's so interesting because he goes through (laughs) step by step and he talks about the doctrines that basically distinguish Protestantism from Rome. And it's really interesting. I mean, it's already shocking how much agreement there is on the specific doctrines that divide uh, the two. So Mm -hmm. it's, he goes through on the doctrines where they are divided, but before he says what the differences are, he describes what they have in common or what is distinguished between the two. But what's equally noteworthy is what's not included in that book. I mean, he's got a chapter on the will. He's got a chapter on justification. He doesn't have any chapter on creation ex nihilo, or the doctrine of the Trinity, or Christology and the relationship between Christ's two natures. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's important. Um, Yeah,
0: there's this great, it's an older book, but one of the great historians, Pelican, he put it that way, right? He said, there is, yeah. yes, this Protestant principle that we have to hold on to, but there's also a Catholic substance. And, yes. and that includes doctrine, but also includes a whole, lot of, a whole lot more, like liturgy and so much more.
2: Yeah, so that's a lot of big picture stuff we've been talking about. Let's get into some of the specifics. You begin the first section of this book uh, by examining some of the theologians that uh, a lot of evangelicals might not be familiar with. You talk about Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, Hugh of St. Victor. And so you talk about them specifically in relation to mystical theology and spiritual ascent and the idea of theological contemplation. That's a big theme of the the beginning of your book. So tell us a little bit about these figures and this idea of spiritual ascent. And how does a a Franciscan like Bonaventure use these terms?
0: Hmm. Well, you're certainly right. These are essential terms to understand. And for listeners, if you grab the book— There's so much more than what Sam and I are talking about here. I mean, someone like, just think of someone like Bernard. I give him a little bit of space, but really any one of these figures could take up a whole chapter. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's such a rich period. Bernard, for example, is someone that's quoted by Calvin, not just in his institutes, but in his commentaries. And so when you look at the reformers, they're not necessarily interacting with, with everyone, in the early high or late middle ages, but you will notice when they are writing either commentaries or books on theology or even polemical treatises, uh, they are engaged, and mm-hmm. I think that is is telling because uh, sometimes when we think of this period in history, we can tend to think, well, maybe the reformers went back and retrieved a, a mystical understanding, or at least uh, uh, in part, and they rejected scholasticism, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I actually think that's too neat and tidy, and it, that's not actually how the period worked to begin with. Um, right? yeah. Scholasticism and what you're calling this spiritual ascent and a type of mystical focus, that, that even that word mystical is, you know, we we use it today— uh, it's probably a bit more recent in use than, than historical. But uh, all of this was so intertwined. I mean, when you're talking about someone yeah. like a Bonaventure or even a Thomas Aquinas, it's not as if they separated out their theology to say, well, okay, here's my scholastic bit. <laughs> and now yeah. if you want to talk about spiritual ascent or a mystical component, well, then go over to the, those mystics over there, you know, a Henry right. or a Hugh or a Bernard or a Bonaventure. It wasn't like that, actually. It's not that there's no truth to, to those distinctions. I think someone like a Bernard or Hugh or or Bonaventure do have a more what we could call definitive lean <laughs> in, in, mm-hmm. that, in that direction, that mystical direction. But even someone like a Bonaventure, in many ways we could call him a scholastic, uh, you start to see it come out even in his mystical writings. And then even someone like a scholastic, like Thomas Aquinas, has a very strong emphasis on spiritual sense. And and in fact, some have argued that his notion of participating in the likeness of God is at the very core of his scholastic theology. So that's a, a bit of a preliminary caution it's not so easily divisible. But that said, yeah, I mean, when you look at someone like Bonaventure, so here we're, we're thinking 13th century, this is a very fascinating test case because he writes this book called The Journey of the Mind of God. And here he is not trying to invent some type of mystical emphasis out of nowhere. Sometimes we get this impression of them. Actually, he's very indebted to uh, certain church fathers who've come before him, Augustine being one of them, Mm. among others. Now, we don't have to talk about, you know, the whole book here, but, I mean, it's not very long, and listeners could go pick it up. And what you will notice is someone like Bonaventure is entering into this conversation, this ancient conversation, and he's trying to understand how do we actually ascend to God? Because he's noticing in Scripture the many ways that the Christian life is described as a type of spiritual ascent. And so he grabs hold of, say, Jacob's ladder. You think of that narrative in Genesis to say, well, actually, by the Spirit, through the Son, we are meant to ascend to the Father. And he goes back to this ladder, this, you know, imagery of a ladder and says, well, this, this is like Christ. Uh, Christ is the yeah. ladder by which we ascend. And, you know, we might be tempted to say, well, you know, maybe Bonaventure is just Pelagian here as if this is something yeah. we do mm-hmm. by our own initiative. Actually, he's not. He understands that grace must be primary. Otherwise, this spiritual ascent will never begin. And he's not exactly removing scholastic categories either because he spends, right, yeah. interestingly enough, in the midst of all of this spiritual conversation, he spends time talking about, well, who is this God that we are ascending to? Well, he must be pure act. He must be simple. Mm-hmm. He must be immutable and and so much more. So I'll mention one other thing too. There is a hermeneutical dimension as well uh, because he doesn't think that a literalistic uh, interpretation of scripture will get you there. Um, right. And this is sometimes is controversial in his own day, because when he looks at something like poverty, which was a major, if you know the history of the Franciscans, this is a major emphasis with them. Bonaventure makes a a very controversial move to say, well, it's not a literalistic understanding of scripture as if this poverty has to be strictly physical or a type of denying any type of wealth to our physical or even familial standing. Rather, he wants to describe it primarily as a spiritual poverty which of course relates to the spiritual sense of scripture now all that to say when you come to the 16th century it might be tempting to think well oh good the reformers are just you know ridding the church of this type of mystical emphasis but that's just not the case you look at uh, luther for example luther is early i mean we're talking like 1508 to 1518 Luther has extremely high praise for this book called A German Theology in which this is basically the the German version of this mystical emphasis he says of this book no book except the Bible and St Augustine has come to my attention from which I have learned more about God, Christ, man, and all things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And from there, Luther goes on to talk about uh, the importance of this spiritual ascent. Now, at the same time, Luther will take aim. You could read his book, A Judgment on Monastic Vows, because Luther thinks, well, even though there's this right biblical emphasis, nonetheless, it is applied itself in the wrong way. And so he's going to make Mm -hmm. a a pretty strong critique of monastic vows to say, well, this actually works against it rather than for it in the end. But all that to say, even in the midst of that critique, the reformers are trying to preserve what I would call a Catholic spirituality. And so whether it's Bernard or Bonaventure, yes, they're not in total agreement with them. And they will take issue, especially with the application of this mystical spirituality with something like vows. But at the same time, they do want to preserve its substance and actually reappropriate it for their Protestant cause.
2: Yeah, that is, that is so important. I think you're right that there is this impression. You know, I, I just finished reading that little book by Bonaventure, The uh, Mind's Journey to God, and was really edified by it. I think there is this temptation that, you know, evangelicals, we read something like that. And there's this knee jerk reaction to say, this is just Pelagianism. This is just, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps Mm. and uh, sort of make this ascent up to the presence of God. And often what we're replacing it with is not reformed theology because, you know, you, you mentioned that Luther has this category of the importance of, of German mysticism for him. Calvin also has this emphasis on a spiritual ascent You know, so these realities are not foreign from the reformers. And often what we think we're replacing with this emphasis on spiritual ascent is actually a bare rationalism or, Mm. you know, almost like a fideism. Just believe, just get all of your conceptual ducks in a row, mentally speaking, and then that's it. There is no spiritual ascent. There is no contemplative aspect of our theologizing you're right. I, I think that's that's foreign from the reformers, and so we don't have to reject all of that. This is a, this is a big theme in the church fathers. You mentioned Augustine, but Gregory of Nyssa also has this you know massive emphasis on spiritual ascent as well. So there's something to that. There's this mystical aspect of the reformers' context, but you've you've talked about the scholastic background, so we can t- talk about that a little bit as well. You know, as you mentioned, these things aren't at odds with one another, but let's talk a little bit about the scholastic background, the scholastic context of the reformers situation. What exactly is scholasticism? You talk a little bit about how it evolved. So tell us about what scholasticism is and how it evolved from someone like Anselm to Peter Lombard.
0: Yeah, you know the word scholasticism today, as you know, Sam, it, it's almost used as this pejorative curse word. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it doesn't take long to to run into someone who they associate that word with some type of dry, uh, rationalistic, speculative in the in the way we think of speculative today, sp- speculative, rationalistic, unbiblical. Clearly, no no dose of any type of sp- Spiritual experiential theology to go with it. Yeah. And that's just, goodness, what do we even say to that? Uh, it, it lacks <laughs> such historical credibility that it's not that there were not, well, we'll talk about humanism in maybe one of the future episodes, but it's not that there were no, there was no one critical of scholasticism that didn't level those type of objections, but in, say, the humanist corner. Um, but as we'll see, there's even greater nuance there. But but it was usually based more on a misunderstanding or a certain polemical agenda, not actually on what scholasticism represented itself. And so that's the first thing that needs to be said is, you know, if you, to our listeners, if you hear someone out there just using that word scholasticism as if, well, that's, that's unbiblical, that clearly is just dry, dead orthodoxy, um, the first thing to understand is, Historically speaking, that's just not accurate. So when we go back to the scholastic period, it's been dated in various ways. But and you mentioned Anselm, Anselm in the 11th century. He's a a great a marker. And, and some have even said, well, here is you know really the rise of of scholasticism. Though some have gone even earlier to look at someone like Boethius. But Anselm is yeah. is really critical. Now, there's a lot to say about scholasticism as it really comes into full bloom, into maturity. Scholasticism is actually referring not so much to a theology and philosophy, though though it is connected to one, but it is primarily about uh, a method, uh, really. Right. And when you see the rise of, say, the university setting, the scholastic method is meant to serve both professors and students alike in order to refine and clarify and actually come to better and, and more biblical conclusions, which might surprise people because they think of scholasticism as, you know, uh, really in conflict with the Bible. But when you go mm-hmm. back and you look, they're using the scholastic method to actually study the Bible <laughs> right? Yeah. and to study it in detail and to become not just better Bible commentators, but actually better Bible preachers. Yeah. And so they would utilize uh, the lecture to comment, to pr- provide a commentary on the text. They would utilize this method of meditation in which the student could reflect and contemplate on, on what the text means and then actually how it should be applied in the church and for the church. And then they would also raise major questions that they could then submit to be considered, and those questions then could enter into a type of disputation in which students or even professors and scholars could engage one another, sometimes over controversial questions. Now, before we get into all of that, I think the first thing to notice here is this emphasis on contemplation, which we we just talked about. And so with someone like Anselm, it's so interesting that Anselm, he sometimes gets caricatured as this, this early, you know, rationalist nothing further could be you know, from the truth. You look at his proslogion, he makes it very clear from the beginning that he is approaching this out of faith that then seeks understanding, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so his students have asked him again and again, would you please write something for us? We know what The Bible says, but why should we believe this? And how are we to understand these deep things of God, like the attributes and the existence of God or even the Trinity in a way that uh, is not contradictory? And so Anselm sets out to contemplate these deep things of God, but always out of a posture of faith, first and foremost. Yes,
2: the whole thing's a prayer. It's a prayer. He's got a, a couple of sections where he addresses himself. But never does he address anyone else. It's it's himself and God that he's talking to the whole time.
0: You're absolutely right. Uh, it's, he begins on this with a prayer and he ends this way too, talking about yeah. the joy of heaven. In fact, he even yes. says at the very beginning that he understands that he's created in the image of God, but this image is so effaced, so worn away by what he calls the darkness and the smoke of sin— that he cannot know God unless God renews his image. And then he enters into this beautiful prayer to say, Lord, I can't attain your lofty heights, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what is my understanding compared to you? But I do desire to to know you, even if it's just a little. (laughs) And then he prays, he quotes from Isaiah 7 saying, I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand and unless I believe, I shall not understand. And so this is really the heart of scholasticism moving forward, and I think that's really key to remember. Now, by the time you get to someone like a let's just say someone like Peter Lombard, you know, Lombard ends up writing one of the what we today would call the textbook on theology, And it's fascinating to look at because Lombard puts forward questions. And as he does so, you might think, well, are the students just supposed to regurgitate these? Well, actually, you know, if you're one of the brighter students, I suppose, uh, in the university setting by that time, you would have not just looked at Lombard's questions to understand, okay, how does the Bible answer this? How are the church fathers answering this question? And sometimes Lombard leaves it ambiguous for that reason because he's raising a question about maybe this hasn't been answered yet. But then Mm -hmm. if you're one of the brighter students, you come along and you make a contribution by writing a commentary – on Lombard sentences, and not just answering maybe some of the ambiguity, but perhaps even raising new questions yourself. And so as you can see, this becomes a a very rich soil, and the reformers themselves are born into the soil. They rise out of the soil, and they, they know this method very well. When they are protesting that word scholasticism, we have to be careful because they're not necessarily protesting the scholastic method. In fact they're using it uh, as they speak but mm. but rather, they may be protesting certain conclusions that certain scholastics reached, and that's an important right. qualification because when you look at say Calvin and Geneva and uh, the Geneva Academy, they're using the scholastic method in order to teach these students because they understand this will bring them to a better, more clarifying even a more spiritual understanding of who they are in light of God and Christ and even a better understanding of the bible so that they can preach to the people of god.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, there's so much there and I'm going to practice some restraint cuz I, I want to I want us to to go there but that's that's the next episode. So we're going to wait for the next episode to talk about some of the basically who, who it is that they have in their crosshairs when they use the word the scholastics. But before we go any step further, when we're talking about scholasticism, we have to talk about Thomas Aquinas. You can't talk about scholasticism as a category, really, without talking about Aquinas. And so you've dedicated a whole chapter to Aquinas and his influence. So maybe tell us a, a little bit about why it's so important for us to, to understand Aquinas And what the reformers mean when they call him the sounder scholastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had to go there, didn't you, Sam?
2: (laughs) This is your thing, right? Like he's, he's your homeboy. Every time we want to get you in trouble, we just ask you about Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I've noticed that. I've noticed that. Well, believe it or not, Thomas Aquinas is just one figure among others in the book, but I did feel the need to, because He's not the only figure, of course, but I did feel the need to give him a good amount of space because he is so misunderstood by Protestants. I mean, when Mm. was the last time you saw any Protestant write a book on Thomas Aquinas? And yet, if you walk into any type of theological library, you'll notice that there's mountains of books on Thomas Aquinas, but they're not by Protestants. And so this, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that, but this hasn't helped uh, when you go back to the 16th and the 17th centuries, even the 18th century, you notice an entirely different situation. First of all, the reformers and their heirs, so think here, not just a first generation, but second generation reformers and not just second generation reformers, but we'll talk about this in a You know, maybe we can get to this in another episode, but that period called Protestant Orthodoxy, or Mm -hmm. even that slice of it called Reform Orthodoxy. Well, everyone from Peter Martyr Vermigli to Martin Bootser, Jerome Zonke to, goodness, Stephen Charnock, and a Puritan like John Owen, and and so many others, in one way or another— they are indebted to Thomas Aquinas. It's as simple as that. I, I don't mm. – and that's not even a prejudice. That's just, that's just history there. When you look at their writings, sometimes it's direct and sometimes it's indirect. But they are constantly in conversation with Thomas Aquinas. You'll see it in Francis Turton. Now, of course, he's going to be careful because of the, still the polemics with Rome at that time. Right. But whether it's Turton or Charnock or Owen, I mean, Owen is in a context in which he's trying to counter Arminianism and Sassanianism. And where does he go? He goes, well, the doctrine of God's at stake. So he's going to go right back to Thomas Aquinas
1: and start talking
0: about everything from pure actuality to the doctrine of the Trinity to Christology. (laughs) So I just want to dispel that myth from the very beginning. When you look at Thomas Aquinas, there's a reason why whether it's a, a Martin Bootzer or a Peter Mar Vermigli, uh, whether it's a Theodore Beza or a Francis Turton, there's a reason why they use different labels. But in the uh, grand sweep of things, they all say, out of all the scholastics, Thomas Aquinas is the sounder one. He's the sounder mm. scholastic. And the reason for that is because... Well, when you compare Thomas Aquinas to those scholastics in the late Middle Ages, which we, we'll get to in another episode, you know, figures like Duns Scotus or William of Ockham or especially Gabriel Beale, there's a world of difference. Now, there's, there's so many reasons why. I mean, first of all, when you read Thomas Aquinas, he's utilizing a scholastic method that, that begins with an article and poses a certain question it's often a specific question. Is the son, this would be a critical one, right? Is the son consubstantial with the father? Mm -hmm. And then what's so fascinating about Thomas's method is he first raises objections that might counter his position. And he even, he he knows them really well. That's the thing about Thomas is he's not just putting forward a straw man. He actually knows these objections so well. And then he puts forward his own, on the contrary, which is usually one sentence where he'll quote the Bible or perhaps a church father, and then he'll give his reply. His reply is actually really brief. It could be a paragraph, it could be a page, maybe two pages at most. And then he gives his counter to those previous objections he raised. Now, this style is really helpful because it allows Thomas then to talk about everything from the fourfold sense of scripture to the doctrine of the Trinity, to Christology, and and yes, to even predestination and and grace. Yeah. And so, yeah. one of the things that they recognize is well, the majority of the Summa that that Thomas wrote, the reformers had no issue with. I mean they mm-hmm. they wouldn't they wouldn't dare to. Otherwise, Rome would say, yeah, you're you're actually you are innovators, even on those. Areas that they did take issue with. So let's just talk about, say, grace, for example. Is grace this infusion of habits? Well, in justification. Well, they disagreed. And they said, no, uh, we actually think there's an imputation that changes our status, not an infusion. But even there, they were mindful enough to say, but this idea of infused habits, actually, that would be quite convenient for us and and quite appropriate to just apply to sanctification. (laughs) Uh, And so they recognize even when we have a disagreement, it's complicated. It's more nuanced. And even sometimes where they had a disagreement on grace, again, some of the preliminary matter they did not disagree with. So you take Aquinas on predestination. He sounds very similar to Calvin. Uh, He's emphasizing that predestination... In election, well, these are unconditional. In no way are these based on man, anything in man. And likewise, when he then stresses predestination, he's emphasizing the gratuity of grace and faith and repentance and so much more. So in that sense, as the Reformation moves from struggles over justification and ecclesiology, yes, they have disagreements with Thomas there, but as it moves from those disagreements to actually codifying, say, in the Reformed tradition, a Reformed confession or catechism, to polemics answering the Arminians and Sassanians that that eventually come. Well, at that point, they go back to Thomas on issues that they do agree with, and Thomas proves to be a great ally to them.
2: Yeah, that is a really good description. It's been true even from my own experience as I've read through some of the Reformers and the reformers' progeny, their relationship with Aquinas is complicated. They take some things, they argue with other things. Another example, you you talked about grace and predestination. Another example, I won't ask you about this, but I'll just sort of flag this for our listeners, is the issue of the donum superadditum, the superadded gift of man's capacity to enjoy God and the beatific vision. I've heard Protestant reformed theologians talk about this concept of the Donum Superadditum—it's not a completely foreign idea uh, to me. But most of the presentations that I've been given of this idea of this superadded gift has been that Rome basically has this monolithic view that the Roman Catholic tradition has this monolithic view, and that the reformers come along and they replace it with a biblical view called the Donum Concreatum. But your section—I mean, what you show is—is is that not only is that narrative more complex than that, you even have some reformed theologians like Francis Junius that is not—he's not even upset with the term the donum superadditum. He's—he's even comfortable with using the term. So not only is it complicated on that ground, but it's also complicated by the fact that there's a difference between the way that Aquinas would conceptualize the donum versus a way that John Duns Scotus would conceptualize it, and so. The reformers and their theological children, they come along and they say, we agree with Aquinas over and against Scotus, but we don't think he, he takes it far enough. So we're just going to move in the direction of Aquinas and just take it a step further. And so a lot of the differences that they have with Aquinas, it's not necessarily complete agreement, nor is it a complete disagreement It's more like a distinction (laughs) or, um, you know, and sometimes it is a complete agreement and sometimes it is a complete disagreement. So it's just a complicated relationship. And so on that note, one of the shocking features of this chapter for me as I was reading was the apparent discovery of how badly Luther misunderstood Aquinas. And Mm -hmm. uh, this is a good place to go next because, you know, I'm sure some listeners are are listening to, to you describing the relationship with the reformers that the reformers had with Aquinas. And, you know, they have their finger and, you know, certain portions of Luther's material where he is railing against Aquinas by name. And so you show, though, that Luther received a depiction of Aquinas from others. He, he was taught about what Aquinas believed. And some of his teachers taught an incorrect view of Aquinas. They misconstrued Aquinas's theology and whole system for Luther. So it's kind of a an interesting thought experiment. What might it be like if, if yeah. Luther actually came into contact with the real Aquinas? <laughs> but tell our listeners about this situation. How is it that that Luther came to an incorrect view of Aquinas? And why is that important for us to keep in mind whenever we read about Luther's interactions with Thomism?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a question that's often overlooked, and it only perpetuates some of those caricatures that Protestants or evangelicals love to preach but but maybe without knowledge or understanding. I think there's a couple of clarifications we need to just put right out on the table. First of all, Luther does not actually name Aquinas very often. In fact, you could probably make a list of the, the places where he does and it's not a very long list. At least compared to some other second generation reformers in the way that they're Engaging. I mean, you look at someone like Vermigli or Zonke, for example, and you look at their theological works. I mean, it's 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 remarkable in some ways. They're almost just plagiarizing the very outline mm. of Aquinas's Summa in, in certain respects. So, in comparison, it's a very short list. But the the deeper issue is: well, even when Luther has Aquinas in mind, did Luther read Aquinas?
1: Mm.
0: Well, that's even a difficult question to answer. There's been discussion over that. We don't know entirely how much of Aquinas Luther even read. What we do know is that the portions of Aquinas that Luther did read were more often than not filtered through a very late medieval figure known as Gabriel Beale. Now, we, we can talk about Gabriel Beale in the next uh, episode, I suppose. But Gabriel Beale, just to To put this out there, Gabriel Beale departs in radical ways from the philosophy and the theology of earlier scholastics. So you have to understand that first and foremost. In fact, in 1517, when Luther writes his Disputation Against Scholastic Theology, this is right before the 95 Theses. You might think, oh, Luther is really going at Scholasticism. He's not actually. He's he has in mind very specific individuals. It's Dun Scotus, William of Ockham, and Gabriel Beale, and he has them in mind for specific reasons. And Beale, you could probably make an argument that Beale is top of the list because when when Luther's a student, what books is he being given to read? What books is he being taught to abide by? It's books. By Gabriel Beale, his commentary on the Mass, his sermons, and, and so much more. And hmm. so there's actually been some really good work done by figures like John Farthing, for example. He has a book called Thomas Aquinas and Gabriel Beale. And he, chapter by chapter he demonstrates that in countless ways, even major on major doctrines, Beale Misinterprets Aquinas himself, and mm. that misinterpretation then is perpetuated down to Luther to give Luther really a wrong impression of Aquinas. Now, when we say misinterpreted, what do we mean? Well, to be very blunt, there's discussion among historians, was Beale Pelagian or semi-Pelagian? But Mm, that aside, either way you go (laughs) on that, the point's been made by Farthing that, well, the Aquinas that Beale is representing to Luther is one of those. It it sounds as if... Aquinas is just in agreement with Beale when it comes to free will, whether there's a need for predisposing grace, his understanding of sin, merit, infused grace, love. And so it's no wonder that Luther in many ways just assumes, oh, Aquinas must be of this, this same stripe, the same clan. It's really unfortunate. Now, you know, would the Reformation still have happened? You know, that's a fascinating hypothetical. I think it would have changed things in maybe some significant ways, and actually, I, the reason I think that is because when you look at Luther, wasn't trained as a Thomas. He was trained in this school of Gabriel Beale. It's called the Via Moderna. But mm-hmm. when you look at others who were trained as Thomas, like a Martin Bootzer, for example, they don't have the same reaction that Luther had to Aquinas. In fact it's not that they don't have any disagreement, they do, but they're also quite willing to retrieve Aquinas when it proves advantageous, to to demonstrate that, no, we too as reformers fall within this Augustinian and Thomistic understanding of philosophy and theology. So all that to say, I think it would have changed things, and and looking at some of these other reformers, I think there is proof Mm -hmm. of that. I don't think, though, that... Some have gone this route. I don't think that it would have prevented the Reformation um, right. because even though there is this continuity that Luther is just unaware of, there's still, first of all, what we might call the more ecclesiastical and societal issues. Luther's a pastor. Yeah. He's on the ground. He's noticing the abuse of indulgences. Well, that he still would have taken issue with that when it comes to, say, even justification itself. It sure would have helped Luther to have a better understanding of Aquinas. I think he would have found an ally in Aquinas on his debate with Erasmus over the bondage of the will, for example, and predestination. At the same time, though, he still would have taken issue with Aquinas and whether justification is by means of infused or imputed grace. And so those issues still stand in the end.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we can't stress enough the importance of of getting these things right, because the Aquinas that you described as being given down from Beale to Luther is, in many ways, the Aquinas that many evangelicals today are arguing against. Yeah. And uh, it's it's really important that we just come to grips with the fact that that's, that's not actually the Aquinas of history, as is marked by, you know, exactly what you just alluded to, the fact that there's so many other reformers that were better read on Aquinas and they used him. They were indebted to him in many ways. And and that's, that's good for us to mark just because, you know, we often think that the Reformation was the work of, I mean, basically two characters, Luther and Calvin. But it, there was many Reformers that were in league together across, you know, traditional lines, Lutheranism, the Reformation wing, and then the Anglican wing, and many of them. Are drawing from Aquinas. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to flag this for for our readers, but the uh, I think it's it's easy for us to not even ask the question: Did Luther actually have access to Aquinas's writings? Because we do, right? I mean, it's easy to at the uh, touch of a finger to get to countless works of theology, and yet that just wasn't the situation of Luther's day. Um, I think you know many of many pastors today probably have a far richer library than someone like Luther or even Calvin had yeah. uh, they were working with anthologies and uh, commentaries that had you know bits of these authors of yesteryear and so they're working with a far limited scope of material than we get access mm. to so well i just had one one more question for you And and feel free to touch up on anything else that I just mentioned there uh, as you answer this question. But uh, last question for this episode, I I just wanted to talk a little bit about how we should understand ourselves as evangelicals today. So our heritage as Protestants uh, can be traced back to those immediate heirs of the Reformation, not just the Reformers, but those that were immediately after the Reformers, what we call the Protestant Scholastics or the Reformed Orthodox. And so my question is, should we think of our identity as Protestants in a scholastic vein as they did? Should we root our theological heritage, not just to the reformers, but to the reformers and those that came before and after them and actually you know, think of our theology and our theological identity within this scholastic vein as they did?
0: Sam, I think we have to. If we don't, We are not even true to our own Protestant origins. (laughs) And again, so this is, you know, put even polemics aside for a minute. This is just a historical observation. When you look at early orthodoxy, as we call it, roughly 1565 to 1640, this is figures like Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza or Franciscus Junius, Junius, Uh, Zacharias or Sinus, you know, William Perkins. Then you look at high orthodoxy, so roughly 1640 to 1725. These are figures like Francis Turretin, John Owen, St- Stephen Charnock, one who's being retranslated today, Peter van Maestricht, and others. Thomas Boston, so many others. What do we find? Well, it's not just their theological writings, but even their confessions and catechisms. Even, say, The London Baptist Confession, this whole Mm -hmm. period, (laughs) it's a rich, wide period. There's good reason why so many have said, maybe not everyone in this period, but there is a stream of Protestant scholasticism that is alive and well during the 16th and 17th centuries. So I think that's the first thing. That I think listeners have to wrestle with is sure you can you know say I'm rejecting scholasticism but at the end of the day you have to reconcile with the fact that your Protestant fathers did not. In fact, yeah, you yeah. know you don't have to just listen to me on this. If you read someone like he, he uh, died not too long ago, but David Steinmetz, his book Calvin in Context. You might think, well, okay, well, Calvin wasn't, right? Well, he he has a chapter called The Scholastic Calvin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he actually just looks at the evidence across Calvin's writings and shows so many ways, providence to distinctions on types of necessity, to interpretations of God's attributes, to the atonement of Christ, to uh, Christ as high priest, to uses of Augustine in Aquinas, to kingdoms, to predestination. I mean, I could keep going on. He looks at these in so many other instances and just shows again and again, yes, Calvin is reacting against this word scholasticism as he sees it, a, a more innovative version of it in France that actually betrays earlier scholasticism. But as for the scholastic method and as for the realist philosophy and even the theology that comes out of certain scholastics like Aquinas, Steinmetz shows, well, there's a sense in which we can even call Calvin a scholastic. So I think that's the Mm -hmm. first thing that listeners have to wrestle with is like you said, Sam, it's actually incredibly more complicated than we sometimes portray today. And when you look at some of the best historians of the last century, historians like a David Steinmetz or a Richard Muller, they have given their lives to demonstrating this. And so sometimes the popular narrative has to catch up with actually the academic and and good historical scholarship. But the last thing I'll mention is this. I do think there is a theological point to make here as well. If we really do, like the 16th century Protestant (laughs) scholastics did, if we really do take Catholicity seriously, then we can't just... Uh, Ignore this question. We just can't. Yeah. Because they didn't. And to be a Protestant scholastic was pivotal to not just earlier debates uh, in which they utilized uh, certain scholastic insights in their polemics, but even later debates when suddenly the conversation changed. And now, Mm. because of certain groups like the Sassinians, they have to defend things that the previous generation could take for granted. So, mm, yeah. you know, you don't—Calvin didn't have to address in extensive ways in his institutes matters of orthodoxy over, say, the attributes of God. But now, now, his children and heirs, they need to. yeah. And those things can't be assumed anymore. And so both the scholastic method as well as certain <laughs> scholastic theologians become not just relevant— but instrumental for that reason. And I, I'll even go a little bit further and say it's not just for their own personal writings in theology. It's even for their codification of, say, in, you know, in the Reformed wing with the Reformed confessions and catechisms themselves. So don't see this as, oh, this is just an academic issue. To them, yeah. it's that and more. It's actually a church issue. <laughs>
2: It really is good news for us that we get to inherit uh, so much more. It's like, it's almost like discovering if you're a little kid, you grow up in a little house and then you discover a secret passageway (laughs) and you discover that your house is so much bigger than you thought it was. So really, I mean, I I don't know why we wouldn't be eager to discover that our heritage is far richer than we thought. And like you said, it, it could provide incredibly important resources for challenges Today, that's the beauty of the scholastic method is that it gives you resources, not only for rehashing out old ideas or uh, retrieving old ideas that have been lost, but also bringing those ideas into communication and into contact with new problems, new ideas, new controversies, and being able to sort of address them in a thorough way that is helpful for our own generation. So I think you're right, and I hope it catches on. So thank you, uh, Matthew, for joining me on my podcast. We've been talking to Matthew Barrett about his forthcoming book, The Reformation as Renewal with Zondervan Academic. Do check it out. Uh, You can purchase it online where all good books are sold. And thank you for coming on, Matthew. I think I'll have to uh, have you back on for another episode.
1: Sounds good. Let's do it. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.